And this morning we are going to be looking at the last of our four-part series on worship. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. We have already examined the topics of worshiping God through praise, worshiping God in spirit, and worshiping God in truth. And our focus this morning will be on worshiping God as a way of life. Most Christians have in their heads the idea that you come to church, or really what they mean, the church building, to worship. We call this the main worship center. And we call this a worship service. And you hear people say these things, and oftentimes you get the impression, and most people have in their minds, that we worship, quote, on Sunday. If you go up to the average Christian and say, when do you worship? On Sunday. That, that would be the standard answer. And many begin to think that because we are coming here to worship, and we do, and we worship corporately here, and this is good, that this is all that there is to worship, and that the rest of the week you are just waiting to worship again on Sunday. But God's Word tells us that He wants us to worship Him all the time as a way of life. Not just on Sunday morning. Sunday morning may be our corporate time of worship, which the Bible commands us to engage in, but that's not all there is. We are to live in a constant state of worship, every one of us, always focusing, thinking about God, living for Him. And this is what we learn from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But let me just remind you of the preceding context because it's important to understand. We'll look at it in a little bit of detail. Remember, Paul starts off by condemning all men. You're all sinners, he says. You're all sinners in your need of salvation. Then he talks of how we are saved. We are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He discusses the tension of being Saved and living like you're saved. Chapter 6 and 7, saying, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and I do the very things I don't, and wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He talks about that tension. But then he talks about in chapter 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he talks about the whole uh, business of uh, the flesh and the spirit and how these two are in opposition and about how God um, has saved us to walk in a way that brings glory to him and gives us everything we need to do so. And so there's just this great praise of incredible worship coming from Paul in Romans 8 as he just marvels that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul begins to talk about salvation, especially the salvation of both Gentiles and Jews. And in chapter 11, he talks about how the Jews rejected Christ, and he describes them as this natural olive tree. And he says the, the Gentiles are like wild olive branches grafted into that tree, that they too might be saved. And what is amazing is, is that when he describes all of this, he is driving towards application. All the first 11 chapters of Roman, although they contain application, are primarily inf information, doctrine about 
who we are and who God is and what he has done. Then in chapters 12 through 16, he tells us how to live in light of everything we have been given and we are in Christ. And so chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 are the launching pad, the starting gate of living as a way of worship for the glory of God. So if you have your Bibles, look there and follow along as I read. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, and acceptable and perfect. Now these two verses teach us three aspects concerning what it means to worship as a way of life. First we have an exhortation. Then we have a negative command followed by a positive command. We learn what you must be in order to worship as a way of life. Secondly, what you must not be in order to worship as a way of life. And third, how you can become what you need to be in order to worship as a way of life. So let's look at these. Look at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, I urge you. Now in the Greek, the, the emphasis is on I urge you. And that is why, if you have some translations, have, I urge you, therefore. That's how the verse reads. And in, in English, you kind of need to stick to a certain word order, but not so much as in Greek. And a lot of times in Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you will take whatever you want to emphasize, and you'll put it up front in the sentence. Well, here, I urge you is up front, and that's why some translations have, I urge you, therefore. But let's look at this word, therefore. The word therefore tells us there is a progression of thought, and we've already talked about it a little bit. Paul has just talked about how God has saved both Gentiles and Jews, talks about this great illustration of the olive tree and the branches being grafted in, and he is so amazed, so just blessed at what God has done, that he cries out at the end of chapter 11 with this incredible Praise to God. Look at verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, be the glory forever. Amen. And the reason Paul says that is this. He says in chapter 11 that the Jews have rejected their Messiah, which has caused God to turn from them for a time to the Gentiles. And that the Gentiles now are being saved, which in turn have caused some of the Jews and will cause some of the Jews to become jealous so they too will be saved. And Paul is so amazed that God would take the rejection of the Jews and turn it into salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. He just says, the unfathomable, unsearchable riches of God. They just, they can't even imagine that God could do something like this. But he did. 
And it is right after he says that, he says, therefore, because God, by his incredible mercies, has saved both Gentiles and Jews, therefore, I urge you, I urge you. The word I urge you means to appeal to, to beseech, to encourage. It's kind of like this. You know, if you're a parent um, and you have something serious to say to your child, you say, come here right now. Get, get over here. Now, clean your room or whatever. That's what the word basically means. It means to call somebody alongside. And when it's used as a direct address like this, it means to come alongside for the purpose of being instructed in a way that you should go, to take some sort of action. And that is what Paul is driving at. And notice Paul is talking to you. And he defines you as brethren. Brethren. So this is for all of us. The word brethren is used several ways in the Bible. Here it is used of believers who know Jesus Christ. And this brings us to an obvious point of application. If this verse is going to apply to you, you must be one of the brethren or sistren. You can't. You can't worship God as an unbeliever. Oh, you can try, it's just unacceptable. And this creates an obvious necessity. You must be born again. If you are not born again, if you aren't truly a believer, I'm not talking about calling yourself a Christian. I'm talking about being a Christian. You cannot worship God, even a little bit. It's all unacceptable. No, you must be born again. You must be changed and transformed through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, are you a Christian? You say, well, well, yes. Really, are you a Christian? Are you really born again? Well, I, I, you know, I guess so. Do you know or not? Do you really know how to become saved? I mean, what does the Bible say? Right now in your mind, ask yourself, how does a person become saved? How do you know you're saved? Are you just guessing you are a Christian? Or do you think you're a Christian because you say you're a Christian? Or have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus put it this way, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's pretty clear. You don't repent, you perish. No repentance, no salvation. If you don't know what repentance is, repentance is merely understanding that living your life for yourself, for your own pleasures, in your own way, is wrong, sinful, and hostile towards God. It is to acknowledge your way is wrong and to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus Christ to live for him the rest of your days. That's what it means to follow after Christ. To walk after him. And if you have not repented, then you can't be saved. But it's not only a repentance, a turning from sin, but a turning from sin to faith in Christ and to the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? You know, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. Now, if you don't know what the gospel is, can you be a Christian? No. If you don't know the only thing that can save you, then how can you be saved? Can you be saved if you, can't, you have never believed in or don't even understand what you need to believe in in order to be saved? No. And there are many people who call themselves Christians. You ask them, so what is the gospel? It's, um, 
The Bible? No. It's in there. God? No, he's the Savior. Let's find out what it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we get here, I want you to ask yourself this. When I asked you, do you know what the gospel is? What came to your mind? And we'll see if the right thing came to your mind because this is the gospel. Now, this is not all the explanation and expansion of the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul's summary statement of the gospel. And see if this is what came into your mind. And if it did not, you might not be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul describes the gospel in these words. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Paul says, I want you to know. I'm going to tell you what the gospel is. It's the very gospel I preach to you which brought you to salvation. Which also you received. They received it. Which also you stand. And that is they were trusting in it. By also you are saved. So whatever this gospel is, it's what they received, stood in, and are saved. By which also you are saved, he says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And you're going, Paul, just tell us. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he wrote, was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel, the essence of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or to put it in a different way, the person and work of Christ. Now, when I asked you, do you know what the gospel is? Did what come to your mind? Yeah, Jesus died in the cross for my sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. Or what came to your mind was, I don't know, or my parents are Christians, or I've tried to be good, or whatever. If, if anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified came to your mind, there's a good chance you aren't saved, because that is the only thing that can save you. Now, why do I go into all of this? It's because, look at verse chapter 12, verse 1 again. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? The mercies of God are everything he said in chapters 1 through 11, which is the gospel. This is the motivation for obeying what he's urging us to do in this passage. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you have never experienced the mercies of God. You can't worship and don't have any motivation to worship. And that is why... I went on that rabbit trail to ask you that. And if you don't know Christ, then salvation is here. Repent and believe and give your life to Christ and he will change you. He will forgive you. He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will transform you from one glory to the next because he is faithful. And that's what he wants for all of us. But if you are not saved, then you are not one of the brethren and the mercies of God are not a motivation to you because you have never experienced them in a saving way. But if you are one of the brethren, then this passage has things to say to you. And the motivation for everything we're going to look at from this point on are the mercies of God. And now think about this. Think about how sinful you are. We all are. We're wretched. We're sinners. We're We don't deserve to be saved. God didn't save you, I'm sorry to say, because of your good looks. 
He didn't save you because you were smart. He didn't save you because you were a good, you know, accountant or carpenter or technician. He didn't save you because your parents were saved. He saved you by his mercy, by his grace, because he of his own self, regardless of anything you did, decide to choose you in him before the foundation of the world to the adoption of sons and to change you and transform you. He granted you repentance. He sent his son. He sought you out as a lost sheep. And think of all those people in the world who don't know Christ and will never know him. And yet God has chosen you, people. That, that is the mercy of God. That you, out of all the undeserving, unwretched sinner, or wretched sinners in the world, would, would be saved. And, you know, I think of that and it just amazes me. Because I know what a wretch I am and how sinful I am and how often I fall short of the glory of God. And it just boggles me. But, you know, it makes me want to serve God. Knowing the fear of God, knowing what awaits for those who don't believe in him, knowing how men out there need Christ and how Christians need to be built up, it makes me want to just serve God and just strive to do what is right and to give him glory. And it should make you feel the same way. And this is the motivation to do what? Look at verse 12 again. To present your bodies a as a living sacrifice to God. Now think about this. God wants you to present your body as a sacrifice. You know, we are to worship God with our heart and our mind and our soul and strength. And the heart and mind and soul are all our non-physical parts, but our strength is our physical part. He wants us to worship Him with that too. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says basically the same thing. If you want to turn back there, Romans 6, 13, he says this. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you see that? The same word present appears in there over and over again. You are to present, that is offer up, your body on the altar of sacrifice to God and his will. Once for all, climb up there and stay up there for the glory of God. But you might be thinking to yourself, being, being a sacrifice sounds kind of final, doesn't it? I mean, if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, they, you know, they take the animal, plop it down, put their hands on its head, confess their sins, slit its throat, drain its life blood out, and then incinerate it on the altar. It doesn't sound very fun, does it? And to most people that Paul is writing to, all of these people in this age, they knew about sacrifice because they offered blood animal sacrifices or knew about it. And these people are all thinking, Boy, we are to offer ourselves as a a sacrifice. But then there's that little word in the text. Look there. It's not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. All of their sacrifices are brought living and then killed. But this is different than any other kind of sacrifice because God wants you to be a living sacrifice. And the living is a present active participle to always be in the state of living for God. That's what he wants you to do. All the time living for him. He doesn't want you to just die in a moment. He wants you to live your life out for him. 
And the reason we can do that is because somebody else shed their blood for us, right? I mean, Christ Jesus, being perfect, shed his perfect blood to atone for our sins and mend our relationship to God so we can be, quote, reconciled to him, to be justified in his sight. And now, because we are forgiven in Christ and our sins are atoned for in Christ, now we are given all the resources we need so we can be living sacrifices to God. Living sacrifices. Paul described himself in these words in 2 Timothy 4, 6. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure or death has come. Paul saw, saw his whole life as a drink offering, which you would you know, put some wine in a cup or whatever and you would pour it out to the Lord. And that's how he saw himself, just slowly being poured out and he was almost out. So there's only a couple drops left. And that's how you are to see your life, and I am to see mine. We are to see ourselves as living, as slowly being poured out for God. Day to day, week in and week out, we are poured out to God. The main problem, though, is when we are living sacrifices, we like to crawl off the altar. That's a problem, isn't it? You see, whenever you get into sin, whenever you decide to sin, what you're doing is you're making a commitment to crawl off the altar, aren't you? You're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I, this thing looks good. I'm going to lust after this. The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, whatever it be, whatever sin you can think, whenever you sin, you've crawled off the altar. Now you're sacrificing yourself to who? Self and Satan. You, you're now living for the prince of this world, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and you are no longer an acceptable sacrifice to God. But you know what? God has provided for this. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we're sinners. As a matter of fact, as he says, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. He knows. But what's great about it is God has made provisions and he says, if you, all you need to do is confess your sins and, and I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, confession and repentance are the hands that lift us up back in the altar. We're all going to sin, but you know, I don't know about your life, but my life, some days it's like, you know, I jump off and confess and he puts me on. And then I jump off and confess and he puts me back on there. And all day long, I'm doing that trying to keep my mind pure and my thoughts pure and walk in this wretched world in a way that is glorifying to him. And so God says, I want you to be a sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, and not just a living sacrifice, but look at the text, a living and holy sacrifice. That is why you need to keep your sins confessed. Because he wants you to be holy, which means set apart from sin. Do you know in the Old Testament how if you were going to offer up a lamb or a goat or something like that, that if you were going to do that, you had to have an unblemished animal, right? You couldn't bring the flea-ridden, one-eyed, one-legged, you know, creature up there with big abscesses and say, here, you know, here's my, quote, sacrifice. No, it had to be an unblemished sacrifice without defect well that's what god wants from us he wants us to be unblemished and the only way that happens is when we are not living in sins and we have our life right before him we've got our sins confessed it's not that there's 
a lack of forgiveness to be had. We have forgiveness in Christ. But that forgiveness is applied not only at the beginning, but all along our lives as we constantly are falling into sin and then we confess it and he keeps cleansing us and cleansing us all of our life. And that's what God wants you to be, a holy sacrifice separated from sin. Remember, you can only serve one master. And I think a lot of people come and they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm going to go to church, but I've got this little secret sin in my life. I've got this, you know, thing I'm indulging in. Uh, I've got, you know, something that no one else knows about but God. And then we try and pretend like we're worshiping him. And we may stand in the pew with the Bible under our arms, singing praises to his name, and none of it is acceptable to him. Because in our heart, we have a sin there that is our favorite, beloved sin that we are not going to turn from. And so that one sin makes our whole lives unacceptable to him. And he rejects it. We're really living for Satan while we seem to be worshiping God. Because Satan wants us to indulge in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He doesn't want us living in holiness. But that's what God requires. We have to be living holy sacrifices, not just living ones. Think of your sin as showing hatred towards God because that's what it is. Sin is an act of hatred towards God. When you sin, don't wallow in it, don't enjoy it and stay there and wallow in the mire of your rebellion. Repent, confess it to God and you will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. The Bible promises it and then you will be placed back up in the altar. And sometimes you're up and down all day. It's the way it is. God wants you to trust in him and use his resources. Let me ask you this. When you look at your life, when you look at your work and your play, you know, it's not that we always have to go around with, you know, our heads shaved and, you know, with a robe on and hunkered down looking pious. I'm talking about when you're fishing and when you're skiing and when you're on vacation, when you're watching TV at night and when you're out shopping when you're at work, when you're in the attic doing wiring, whatever it is, are you doing it for the glory of God? Is your heart right before God? When he looks at you, do you need to confess anything? If you do, confess it. If you need to turn from it, turn from it. Don't just stay there. He's given you everything you need to walk before him in holiness, but you need to take the resources that he gives you so you can walk before him in holiness. And if you do this, if you are a living sacrifice, if you are a holy sacrifice, then you are an acceptable to God sacrifice. And that's what the text says. Acceptable to God. If you are acceptable, which means well-pleasing, then you are holy and you are living for the glory of God. And Paul sums up all of this at the end of verse 1. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, if you have a King James Version, it just says, which is your reasonable service. And why the difference? Why does, you know, the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Bible have something like, 
your spiritual service of worship. Why the difference? Well, the first word translated spiritual in the New American Standard Bible, or reasonable in the King James, is the word logikos, the word we get logic from. And it, it talks about what is not physical, but in your mind, what is reasonable and rational. So it is spiritual as opposed to physical. That's one of the reasons. Secondly, in chapter or verse 2 of chapter 12, he talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is also a spiritual emphasis. So that is why the, they translate it your spiritual service of worship. But why do they t- translate service, service of worship, instead of just service, which is what the Greek literally reads? This is why. Because the word service there is a word almost always used in the New Testament to describe the priests and Levites as they served God in the temple. And so the, the connotation of the word is service in worship to God. That's how it's used. And so that's why they put that in there because that's what the word means. It is your spiritual service of worship. And since that's what he's talking about here, being a living sacrifice, that is why they translated it that way. That is why they translate it. That's what God wants you to be. And if you are living, if you are holy, if you are acceptable God, this is your spiritual service of worship all the time, not just on Sunday morning. You are to worship God as a way of life. It's so easy to come to church and to put on that pious smile and, the, you know, have the Bible under the arm and, you know, you've got your tie on but not your sport coat. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, I am looking the part. But I ask you this. Are you looking the part on the inside? When God sees you, does he sees you, see you as living the part? Are you worshiping God here on Sunday morning? What about Monday morning? What about Tuesday afternoon? What about Wednesday at 10.30 a.m.? What about Friday at 10.30 p.m.? What about all the rest of the week? Are you living for God? And I'm not just saying, you know, always sitting down praying, reading your Bible. I'm talking about work and play and whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Is your life holy? This is your spiritual service of worship. But it's not an easy task, is it? Because we're quick to fall into sin and crawl off the altar. And so that is why Paul tells us what we need to do and not to do. First, he gives us a negative command, telling us what not to be. And this is our second point, what you must not be in order to worship as a way of life. Look at verse 2. And he says, and. So and is a connector word. So he has just said... This is your spiritual service of worship and, and here's the negative command, do not be conformed to this world. Now the word conformed here means to be shaped or molded. It's the process of beating or hammering or molding or crushing something into a shape to conform it. Like an ice cream scoop, you know, you'd square block and then you get the little ice cream scoop and you pressure it and the ice cream conforms to the round shape of the scoop. And that is what Paul is saying here. Don't let the world conform you. Now the word world here is not the normal word cosmos. It's the word, um, it's really translated age. It's really, he's really saying don't let this present age conform you. 
shape you, mold you. And the verb is passive, and, and there's two ways you have verbs. One is active, where the subject is the doer of the action. The other time, the subject is receiving the action. Instead of the boy hitting the ball, he's being hit by the ball. And here, he's saying, don't let the world pound you into its shape. Conform you into its shape. Peter used the same word in 1 Peter 1.14 when he said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Don't let your former lusts, that is the lust that you supposedly repented of, conform you back into the way you were, which is hostile and rebellion against God. Sin is enslaving. I mean, all of us know that sin is pleasurable, otherwise it wouldn't be tempting, would it? And we all know we have weaknesses. You start sinning and lusting and coveting, and pretty soon you're you're molded, you're conformed. You, You start looking just like people of the world, and people of the world can't even tell that you're a Christian. You know, it's a bad omen when, you know, after working at a place 10 years, somebody says, you're a Christian? That's not good. They should know the first week. And not because you went over there and said, hey, see this tag right here? Christian. You live like it. So they know. You are honest. You are hardworking. You are considerate. You don't engage in their carnality and their wickedness and their jokes. Everybody knows that as soon as you get worldly and the world conforms you into its image and then you try and share Christ with somebody, it's futile, isn't it? I mean, I remember one time when I was working at an electrical supply house and I was um, there and uh, there were some guys sitting in the break room and, and one of them told a, a, a nasty joke that was pretty funny. Um, and I laughed and then I thought, you know, I, I need to make sure you know, I'm not laughing. So I, and then about three months later, I said, you know, you got to try going to church. And you know what came out of that, the, this one guy's mouth who told the joke? Listen. I saw you laughing at our jokes. It's like, mm, mm. Just engaging in that a little bit, that was all he knew about me. All he knew, he didn't care how honest I was. He didn't care what I said. He didn't care what I did during the week. All he knew is, is that one point in time, several months earlier, I chuckled a little bit at a nasty joke, and that's all he knew of me. I was a hypocrite, and he didn't want to have anything to do with my Christianity. Don't let that happen to you. I was conformed to this world. Now, how do you... Get conformed to the world. It's always through the mind. It's always through your mind. The battle is in the mind. We're always trying to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. It's always a struggle of the mind. To keep your mind focused on the things above. On what is pure and noble and just and right. Truth, not error. And this all happens through your mind. That's where our battle is. It's a battle of the mind. And if your mind is being fed worldliness all the time, what can you expect from your life? Worldliness. Worldliness. You will become what you feed your mind. That is why Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it, what? Flow the springs of life. Now your heart is your thoughts, your Emotions, everything you are that isn't physical. Guard it with all diligence. Well, how do you do that? 
I mean, what do you do? You know, wear a chain mail? No. If your heart is your emotions, your thoughts, your intellect, all of that, the only way you can guard it is to guard your senses. Taste, touch, smell, but especially sight and hearing. Mostly just sight. That's how we guard our heart. We guard our heart by putting in what is good and keeping out what is bad. By shutting down what is bad from coming into our vision. Now man, I have some things I'm going to tell you right now. Well, get ready. Job 31.1 says this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? We need to know what that verse means. It means don't stare, look, and lust after a woman. You have your wife? Fine. Other women? No. Don't let your eyes go there. Listen to what Proverbs 23 or Proverbs 6:23 to 26 says to you, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on the account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. An adulteress hunts for precious life. Don't let her beauty capture you. Capture you. Don't get drawn in by her looks. Why? Because she will reduce you to just a simple morsel. Don't look. Ecclesiastes 7.26 says, And I discovered more bitter than death. That's pretty bad. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. The one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Satan knows, men and your wife, if you're married, should know this too, that your greatest weakness is your eyes and what you look at. Guys are extremely tempted in that area, and that is why in the world today, everywhere you go, there's just... Garbage. I mean, temptation in that area. I mean, you can hardly drive around and there's this woman wearing this slinky this and a woman wearing a slinky that. I mean, they're all over. Driving home from the seminary, every seminary student knows about the billboard of doom. It's on this certain road. You go down there and all of a sudden you're like, okay, we're going down. Or put the visors down in the car, you know, so you're just barely looking over the hood. You don't have to defile your conscience driving by a 90-foot billboard with some slinky woman on it. And why do you think right now in the world and in the church, the biggest problem, the biggest plague is internet pornography? It's just, it's just rampant. And you think you would expect it outside in the world, but even in the church, there's hardly a week or a month that goes by when somebody doesn't come in with their head hanging low. And, you know, it's like, man, I'm just, I'm enslaved to internet pornography. Or some irate wife comes in just hotter and a heart. You can't believe what I caught my husband doing. Yes, I can. Because I just talked to somebody right before you. 
He's using our computer to, to commit mental adultery, to look at things that are just hideous. Men, we need to get a grip on this. If you're going to be a holy sacrifice, you must guard your heart, which means don't look at things you shouldn't. It means anticipating where you're going to go and to making plans in your minds of what you're going to do when temptation strikes, because it will. It will. You know it will. Satan will make sure that you are tempted in that area. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Now, I see you all have your eyes. He was using hyperbole. Otherwise, we'd all be blind groping for the door. But what Jesus is saying is this. Do everything you need to do in order not to sin. Do whatever you need to do. Take whatever restraints you need to take in order not to sin. If you cannot say no to internet pornography, get rid of your computer or your modem or whatever. It's better to go to heaven without internet access than to go to hell with a T1 line and pornography. Don't let this world transform you and conform you and beat you into its image so you are just like every other God-hating person on the face of this planet. And women, I would not be doing you a service if I skipped you. My conscience couldn't bear it. You may not be surfing the web looking at internet pornography, but are you reading it? Are you watching it on TV? Do you fill your mind with lustful, passionate romance novels that do nothing but make you despise your husband and wish he, wish he was somebody else who doesn't even exist? Do you fill your hearts with wretched worldly relationships on soap operas and books and TV shows that are just ungodly? Listen, the chink in a man's armor is his sight, but the chink in a woman's armor is relationships. Relationships. And you know this. And husbands, you need to know this. You set your wife up for temptation if you don't maintain a strong relationship with her. You can become women like the swan whose feathers are white but whose skin is black if you let all of that trash come into your life. You will not be chaste and pure and moral. You will be the wanton woman, discontent, the busybody. We all must be living, holy, acceptable sacrifices to God. And it only happens when we refuse to allow the world to mold us into its image. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. You just have to turn your eyes away. Listen to the latter part of Proverbs 4. I already quoted 23. Listen to the rest. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put divisive speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right, nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. 
That's what you have to do. Don't go this way. Don't go that way. Keep your eyes fixed on God's way and go that way. When things are saying, hey, come here, come off the path, just keep going. You need to think and ponder and consider everything in light of God's truth. If you're going to go to the mall, you need to think to yourself, okay, what's going to be at the mall that might be tempting? How am I going to react? You know, when I walk by this store, that's anything but a secret. What am I going to do with my eyes? And I've got my boys trained. Oh, look left. We all look left and walk by. That's the way it is. I've got my daughter trained. She sees anybody that's dressed immodestly. Dad, look down. Look right. Look left. My wife too. Why? Because I, I have to guard my eyes. I can't be holy on the inside if I'm not. And then in a positive way, you can fill your mind with truth. We'll talk about that in just a second. When the text says, notice in verse 2, but be transformed. Be transformed. This is how you can become what you need to be in order to worship as a way of life. This is the second command. Be transformed. It's also passive. Let something transform you. What do you think that is? It's the word of God. And how are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind. And how does that happen? By making effort. I picked on Brock the first service. We'll pick on him again. He's not here. Brock is taking what is affectionately called gladiator Greek. And what they do is they take 14 weeks of beginning Greek and they crush it into a month. And then they crush it into your head. And every week you're memorizing a couple hundred words and paradigms and, you know, circumflex and penult and antepenult and non-recessively accented verbs and, you know, liquid verbs and... The 24 different thes in the Greek. You know, still in there. All this stuff, you've got it all stuck in your head. And you know what happens when you're getting saturated in Greek? It's hard and it's miserable and you have to set aside everything else in your life just to ask Brock, hey Brock, can you come over and lounge around at my house? Ha ha ha, no. I mean, he won't even hesitate. He has no time to indulge in things that are not Greek. He's, he's Greeking now. And you know what? At the end of the month, he will know Greek. He will, he will not be an expert at Greek, but I'm telling you, he will know way more than he did three weeks ago because he took effort to learn it. And a lot of you are saying, well, you know, I just... You know, I just don't know the Bible very well. Take pains and do what it takes to get it in your head. When I'm driving around, I'm listening to CDs with good music on it that have good strong. If I'm listening to music, I'm trying to have music that either has strong words or I listen to instrumentals so I can pray to God. Or I listen to tapes. I listen to tapes, all kinds of sermon tapes and sermon CDs. Why? Because I want to constantly have that stuff. When I'm in my garage, I go out there and I, I play a tape and I'm doing stuff and I'm cutting stuff with a saw and routering and stuff. And a lot of times I miss having to it. I, the tape just goes, it cycles, it's got auto turnover. And sometimes I listen to it four or five times before I think I finally got it memorized. And then I put another one in for the next week or two. And just constantly get God's word in your, in your heart. You read the Bible, you go to Bible study, you study, you talk about it with people. You know, have you ever thought about this? 
Now, so I was reading, and this is a weird passage. you know anything about this? No. Well, let's talk about it. Let's look at it. Constantly have God's word in your heart. Let it dwell richly within you. And that is what's going to transform you. And the word transform is a great word. It is the word that we get metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis. And everybody knows what that is. I mean, if you're in grade school, you learn about the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly. You know, and you get all those little things and they're crawling around and they're all spiny and ugly. That's how unbelievers are. Spiny and ugly to God. And then what happens is, is when you become saved, then you are like the caterpillar that spun a cocoon and you're, you're still kind of ugly on the outside. And, but inside, your inner man is being renewed day by day. And finally... When you die or Christ comes back in glory, you become the butterfly. You are transformed completely. Now we're just in the process of being changed. And that's what this verse is saying. Don't let the world hammer you into its image. No, you be metamorphosized, changed into something completely different by the renewing of your mind, which we know comes from the word of God. And that is how God wants you to live. You read your Bible, you listen to music, you pray, you get in discipleship groups, you go to Bible study, you come here on Sunday, get saturated. Know more about the Bible than the sports page. Know more about the Bible than fishing and golfing. And know more about the Bible than any other thing in your life. Make it the number one knowledge you have. You might be ignorant of the paper, you might be ignorant of what, Carnal movie star married who? But man, you know what the Bible says. That's what we need to be. And that kind of person will be strong and who will be able to stand in the day of temptation because he will have on the full armor of God. He will have all the resources of God available to him. He will understand what they are and he'll know how to apply them. In the second book of John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, is the story of Christiana. The first book is about Pilgrim and his journey to the celestial city. The second one, his wife Christiana and her kids finally repent and they leave the city of destruction and God sends a messenger, Greatheart, to guide them on their way, the straight and narrow and often hard way to the celestial city. And along the way, they have picked up other Christians from various places. They're starting to accumulate. There's like a little church happening. And they're, they're growing. And they're heading towards a celestial city. They're growing in numbers. And at one point, they come across a man who is my all-time favorite character in the book. And that is Mr. Valiant for Truth. And this is what John Bunyan writes about Mr. Valiant for Truth. So the pilgrims came to a place where little faith was robbed. There stood a man with a sword drawn, his face all bloody, who said to them, I am a pilgrim. My name is Valiant for Truth. I was ambushed here by three men who came out of the bushes there with long knives. One of them said, Halt! We have a question to ask you. I said, Well, what is it? He said, Will you go with us or turn and go back from where you came or die on the spot? I answered, 
I have followed the Lord Jesus Christ for many years, and I cannot now turn back. Where I came from is not where the Lord wants me to be. And you should know now that no one who has been a follower of Christ for many years would ever join a band of thieves. As for the dying on the spot, that remains to be seen. If you undertake to make me choose one of your courses, do it at your own peril. I have considerable strength. I love my life in the pilgrim way, and I will not give them up easily. The Lord put me on this way, and I intend to stay here at it to the end. Then these three men, wild-head, inconsiderate, and pragmatic, came upon me with their knives. I drew my sword and fought them all. We fought for more than three hours, and they have left some of their marks of valor upon me, as you see, and they also carried away some of mine. And after they saw that they would not take my life immediately, they broke and ran. They must have heard you coming, for they ran just before I saw you. Greatheart was amazed at this and said, But you fought great odds, three against one. Yes, said Valiant. But what does a person care when he knows he has the truth on his side? As one has said, though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And I have read in some record that one man has fought an army and that one Samson slew a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. Greatheart asked, why did you not cry out for help? So I did to my king said Valiant, who I knew could hear me, and he provided invisible help, which was sufficient. You have certainly behaved very worthily, replied Greatheart. What kind of sword do you have? It is a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. A soldier need not fear if he has this and knows how to use it. Its edge will never blunt, and it will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit. But you fought a long time. It is a wonder you did not grow weary, said Greatheart. I did, said Valiant, but I waited on the Lord and he renewed my strength. I fought until the blood dripped from my face and my fingers. I fought with all my strength and courage. Then Greatheart said, you certainly did well. You have resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You shall abide with us and be one of us and we will be your true companions. Then they took him and washed his wounds and gave him some something to eat. And they all went on together. And Mr. Greatheart liked Valiant for truth very much and began to ask him about his past and his hope for the future. And he found him true in every respect. I like that. I like that because here is one person all alone, but in everything he says, he's relying on God's resources. He's relying on prayer. He's waiting on the Lord. He's using the word of God. He knows how to use it, which means he has studied the word of God. He has fought incredible odds. He has the courage to do what is right. They have tried to turn him from the way, and he would not do it, fighting unto death. And that is how all of us need to be. We need to be like valiant for truth. We must present our bodies a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. We must not be conformed to this world, but we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why? Look at the end of verse 12. So that, which is a purpose clause, which tells us you do everything that we've just talked about, so that something would happen, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
When you leave here today, you need to leave here with a commitment to prove to the world what it means to be a Christian, to prove to them what it means to worship as a way of life, to show them what it means to do the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what God wants all of us to do. That's what it means to worship as a way of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great text which tells us in very, very short space what it means to live in a constant state of worship for your glory. And Father, I pray that all of us would seek to be living sacrifices and holy sacrifices, that we would guard our hearts and all the men here would guard their eyes Father, we know that visual temptations abound and that everywhere we look, Satan is trying to lead us to think of things and lust after things that are dishonoring to you. And Father, I pray for the women, Father, who might be led astray by relationships, for their desire to think and lust and fantasize about things that are not real or things that are real and that they wish they had but didn't. Father, I pray that you would protect them. I pray that all of us would take up all the resources you have given us. And Father, that we would take up the two-edged sword. Prayer, the knowledge of your word, waiting on you patiently. And Father, that we would fight into death to be holy, to worship you in every aspect of our life. And Father, we pray this because we know absolutely it is your will. Amen.